Hello and welcome to Millions of Screens. I'm creative producer Leo Garcia, joined via Zoom by TV awards editor Libby Hill and TV deputy editor Ben Travers. Today we're going to be talking about uh, a show recommendation from Ben. Another iteration of Corgi Corner with executive editor Ann Donahue. And finally, as we're ramping into Halloween times, we're going to be talking about some of our favorite scary shows. I think Libby's going to be talking about her favorite scary show and why we need it right now. Maybe You'll more never, never guess. You'll never know what it is. More relevant than ever. It is millions and millions of little screens. Can't you shut up? I'm busy. Boy, what a great show. Well, skipping ahead to the clicker, our recap of the biggest news stories from the past week. Ben, we've been busy with Emmys for about what feels like four months. But we're for done with that now. And the so entire there, pandemic, I think. Yeah, there, there have been a lot of shows that have sort of popped onto your radar and you haven't had a chance to sort of stunt for them. What can you tell us about We Are Who We Are? We Are Who We Are is also an HBO drama uh, written, directed, and co-created by uh, Luca Guadagnino of Call Me By Your Name, Suspiria, uh, The Big Splash fame. Um, And unlike other quote-unquote, auteurs who've transitioned to television uh, with limited series or drama series. Uh, He has a very firm grasp on crafting very specific episodes that then build to uh, an endearing and overall very entertaining and insightful, honestly, uh, series. And he's basically looking at a group of teenagers um, who live on an army base in Italy uh, during the election cycle of 2016 and um they're led by like it's a pretty wide cast but the two main characters are a kid kid who i swear to god is one of the most annoying little shits in the world i think i called him a little shit to my sister in a text message at the same time she texted me the exact same descriptor uh and this was while i was trying to encourage her to keep watching because the entire first episode is about a kid named Fraser, who or Fraser, there is no I. So Fraser, who uh, goes with his mother and moves into this uh, army base in Italy, and she's like the new captain of the base, and there's all these little adjustments to make, and he's trying to meet all the other kids. And then the second episode flips, and we follow um, a young woman named Caitlin, uh, who uh, whose, whose dad is kind of a, a turbulent officer who had aspirations of being a captain and kind of butts heads with the mom, but the kids get along swimmingly. And then from there it kind of expands into a a larger ensemble piece. And honestly, that first episode, again, where it's just looking at Fraser, you're kind of like, I don't know if I can do this for eight hours. I don't know if I can sit with this kid for that long. He's, he's like yelling at his mom for not cutting the roast beef thin enough for his sandwiches. And then he slaps her in the face and you're like, how does this happen? And this kid doesn't get punished, but he doesn't. He just They just continue living, and this is their dynamic. Um, but once it, again, once it kind of expands its vision and starts to expose like what it's really about and how it's really following them, um, it becomes very, very engrossing and um, very well acted, very beautiful, obviously a, a, an enviable escape for anybody who's been stuck at home in America, like watching these young kids just kind of roam about the Italian countryside through various cities with giant parades and events and uh, parties. Like, 
you just wish you could be doing that right now in September when I watched it, uh, October now. Um, but it's also just, it's just very, very specifically um, done. Like it has a lot of, uh, I mean, Luca is someone who has a lot of things to say in general as a very opinionated filmmaker. Um, but through these kids and looking at how the election and how uh, an older generation and how politics, even, you know, when they're being perceived from an, from the other side of the pond, like how that affects them growing up, it has a lot to say about that and about identity and about kind of that important time in your life when you're trying to figure out who you are. Um, and I, I just I just really love the show and I really hope more people watch it. And um, it's something that is designed as both one of those limited series, but if it's successful, we have plans to kind of go on. And, um, you know, after we, after I talked to, to Luca, it's fair and seeing the end of the show, it's very clear what that will be. Um, and it'll, it should be very distinct and they can exist on their own. And I think if it ends as it does now, that'll be fine. But anyway, this is a very long winded rant which you invited when asking for my opinion so i hope it was entertaining but i do enjoy the show and i hope other people will watch it well the new trailer for the crown season four dropped two days ago and we could have maybe talked about it but we thought it might be better to throw to our crown correspondent for yet another version of Corgi Corner. So this week we get our first look at the full trailer for The Crown Season 4, which comes out on Netflix November 15th. And it's really, really interesting to me the priority they place in the outset of showing Queen Elizabeth's corgis before they show Princess Diana, but I'm rolling with it. This is Corgi Corner. Diana is, of course, the reason why most people are excited to see this season, the playoff between the royal family and Diana, kind of the interloper. And I think the trailer bodes really well to solving a problem that they had in the crown season three which is that queen elizabeth didn't really have anything to do like she was dealing with her loser family but that was it so in season four in this trailer you can see they've kind of set her up with two different foils you have princess diana played by emma corrin and margaret thatcher played by jillian anderson above that when you look at this trailer all i could think was God, the money, the money they spend on the show. You have in a minute and a half, pageantry, fireworks, uh, a look at their version of Princess Diana's wedding dress under a voiceover from their, from Charles and Diana's wedding sermon. So it's really impressive to see that the production value is gonna be as high as it ever is. And also thankfully, maybe solve some of the problems they had in the last season. Hey guys. Did you guys watch Bly Manor this weekend? Yes. No. No. <laughs> I watched it like six weeks ago. Screener privileges. Yep. Uh, Eat it. And, uh, Libby, did you watch it in a particular order by chance? Oh, yes. Yeah. Libby, you have to tell us about your Bly Manor viewing order. That's that's a huge reason I need to go back and like watch the entire series. Because there was a... a uh, with screener privilege becomes uh, screener problems. I went in to my Netflix screeners and I selected Bly Manor. And of course it just started playing the season. Um, what I didn't realize is that it had started with episode eight of nine. Uh, I didn't realize that until 10 minutes into the ninth episode, the finale. Uh, and I was like, wait, I was very intrigued. If you've seen the season, you'll, you'll know why I was intrigued, but I thought it was a, a bold move to begin that way 
They don't because it was the eighth episode and, <laughs> and not actually the first. Um, is there something? So is there something too like? Oh, maybe if you t- maybe if more shows took crazy chances like that, like just at the last minute, go, we're gonna move episode six to episode one, and then we're gonna see what happens. But like, it, it's hard. It's hard to talk about at length without spoiling. But but you I'll just spoil. say ep- episode eight is a departure. Okay. Um, and and if it had started with the eighth episode and then moved on to the first. I think it would have um, excised a lot of the inherent unnecessary mystery in the show um, and maybe improve the season uh, <laughs> uh, because I, I, I think Ben and I both agree that um, that the way that the show is plotted right now, the emotions and the themes make sense, but the, the the narrative doesn't necessarily. Um, so I wouldn't be against it. I definitely don't think that starting a season on episode eight and then moving into the finale and then wrapping back around to one <laughs> through seven is how I would suggest anyone watch any show. But um, no, I really liked it. I really liked um, I really liked it. Leo, I know you're in the middle of it, so I'm trying really hard not to spoil anything for you. Feel, feel free to spoil, but I also don't know if any of our listeners are, are finished with it. I assume that most people blew through it uh, as as people are on Netflix or want to do. I will say that like it it is pretty slow moving through the first four episodes, and like I do kind of wish uh, it would kind of get on with it, as it were. You'd started with episode eight. <laughs> Uh, I I will I will say that when I saw episode eight and I was lucky enough to have waited for (laughs) early test screener people to uh, correct Netflix and Netflix to send out a a notice informing people of the proper order, etc. When I eventually got to episode eight, I was very curious about about talking about that perception of it, because it is a very important clarifying episode it's something that answers a lot of questions that you've been waiting to hear and that honestly in my opinion especially the first two to three episodes bend over backwards not to tell you when one of the things that annoys me more than anything else when watching anything but especially a horror show is when characters are put in a position to get answers to a question and they do not get those answers they they're kind of happy or content uh, without explaining themselves or without getting the thing that they've been driven to seek, which I find very annoying. Um, and it's, it's not even that they're content to do it, but they do seem to be like exerting immense amounts of pressure to do that unnecessarily, even if it hinders their narrative. Would you say yeah. that's, yeah. It's yeah. just keeping secrets that don't matter. I think the problem is a little bit like he went for a different type of horror this time. Uh, the horror this time, I think, was much more like existential horror. And I think he it, it felt as though they interpreted that as though they needed to tell the story differently. Um, but I think if you are very clear in the beginning about your intentions and are, and are like, this is an existential horror film, like... Then, then that, then I'm whatever. I, you know, then I'm not watching to see like things jump out at me in the background in every scene, um, because that's kind of what I was expecting. Because that's what Hill House was. Yeah. Um, there's just there was just so much less to declare itself, and 
and it, it's very it, it makes episodes like five and eight and i would include the finale there uh much more effective but they're much more effective because you're actually getting information um <laughs> that helps piece together all of the other episodes um even if he isn't limiting himself to telling it in a traditional narrative structure, um, there's a way to, ways to be inventive. And, and I, um, I don't know. I, I felt a lot for Bly Manor. Like I, I have a lot of feelings about Bly Manor. I have no idea if I like it. I have no idea if it's good, but I, I felt an awful lot of things about it. And, that's uh, that's something for me feeling things uh, something getting yeah. through the 2020 malaise is yeah. pretty good i want to thank no, you no, both no. for for bending over backwards to not spoil anything uh about the haunting of blind manor for me um but we got off track sure. it's my fault because i led with who watched who, who binged blind manor uh, we wanted to talk about actually some other horror shows i think we, we were using blind manor's release last weekend and uh the impending finale of Lovecraft Country as a way in to potentially in this spooky month of October to talk of some of our, our favorite scary shows that are out there. And Libby, I wanted to give you the floor mostly because I don't think ben, ben, ben and I haven't uh, figured out what we're going to talk about yet. Right. But <laughs> right. we know, no, so we know what you're going to you talk about. If you want a segue, if you want a segue, Leo, one of my favorite things about uh, the, the, uh, haunting series, I guess I'll say, is that Mike Flanagan always is very careful to include like a queer uh, queer romance, which is nice because so often, uh, you know, if you do see queer romance, it's it's someone ends up getting fridged or the it, you know it's it's problematic or it's just there and it's not built out or it's just happening in the background, and uh, it's happening in the background, but. But it does remind me because my favorite horror show uh, is also Moonlights as a queer romance. And that is NBC's Hannibal. I mean, I think it's important to start with it aired on NBC because that's bananas. It was uh, ostentatious and, and lurid and um, grotesque and disturbing nightmare fuel it was both visually horrific and even more so psychologically horrific um and i loved it i i, I don't i'm not i like scary things but i don't like gore for gore's sake um one of my least favorite shows a show i cannot be in the room with the sound on for is the walking dead because the sounds just gross me out um and yet Hannibal, I just took it all. I took it all because it was it was horror in service of something. It wasn't just to it wasn't just to, to gross you out or make you feel squeamish. It 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 really wanted to horrify you, and it did so with great effect. Um, especially considering it was airing on a broadcast network that clearly had no idea what to do with it. So much of Hannibal depends on that central duo in this case um it's Hannibal Lecter is played by Mads Mikkelsen and it's Will Graham as portrayed by Hugh Dancy 
Now, the chemistry between them is very interesting, and it's not, it's not, I don't want to say it's text that they are romantically, not romantically, but but some kind of, of, of intimate connection, whether it's father or son, or as lovers, or as, you know, the devil himself, and um, Job, let's say, uh, it's not clear what the relationship is, or it's all of those relationships, which is pretty fucked. Um, but it, it, it's 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 just such a, a weird and and unique situation. And I have to say, I never thought that there would be another. I, I mean, obviously there have been plenty of Hannibal Lecters, but I never thought that it was possible for me to have a Hannibal Lecter that I preferred to like. Anthony Hopkins' iconic performance in Silence of the Lambs. Um, but Mads, my God, he's just, he's, I, I don't know. He's something else. Have you guys seen Hannibal? Heard about the show? Oh, yeah. Scary yeah, show? Yeah. Well, it's on NBC. I do, love, I do love talking about the that central dynamic because I feel like they, they built that out and they rely on it after building it out in such a way that it, it, it never allows itself to be simple enough where you just understand it but it's never like so purposefully complex or like it, it, and it doesn't avoid any sort of like kind of admissions that they're obsessed with each other and that there's a clear attraction there uh to kind of dissuade that basis of it or to or to make it so that you you don't it doesn't earn that like it doesn't earn your interest and your investment in the show and the drama inherent to it because they're so invested in this weird bond between the two central characters and you see that play out in certain other shows and usually they're forced into making it explicit in one way or another if only because they've gone on long enough or whatever but um but like killing eve is one of the interesting examples to to me right now because they've really struggled with trying to define what that relationship is and why both of these characters stick around and um, they kind of settled in their second and third season into just being like, well, we're just going to tilt the thing, the barometer one way, and then we'll tilt it back the other way. And we're not going to bother talking about it, but we're also not going to let them be together or justify their obsession in any way or really explore that as much as they did. I don't so anyway, love like, that. <laughs> I, I love that Hannibal was able to base itself in that relationship uh, without it ever fe- feeling... Um, cheap or oversimplified or uh you know just just uselessly complex so um and the, the performances are a huge part of it like that the, those dynamics don't work unless you've got actors who are absolutely incredible um and uh, i think as you you have mentioned before libby uh it's something that didn't feel like it was near an expiration date and thus could continue to be explored um, if they ever, you know, can get their shit together and bring all these people back for, right. for more it's, stories. I, yeah, I would love to see a fourth season of Hannibal. And obviously the fans of Hannibal would love to see a fourth season of Hannibal. At the same time, I really respect the three seasons that it has because it is definitely a show that once it went off the rails, it would be off the rails forever. And it's always kind of teetering, kind of, let's say teetering on a cliff over the ocean and um and 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 so yeah that that was always a risk but i think 
I mean, and this is clear because Harris has an entire series about this. Hannibal definitely could have turned into a long running series. Like there was a lot of talk about trying to get the rights to specifically Clarice Starling so they could do the Silence of the Lambs, the run up to Silence of the Lambs. And then, um, and then the full season, that was roughly the plan for season four, I think, um, a long, long time ago. But, uh, it, it is something that could, you know, adapt to being some, about something beyond just that central pairing. Um, but yeah, it, it, it was it was gone too soon. It feels more relevant than ever than to have people wanting to eat the rude um, or just have, I, I, I don't know. We deal with so many sociopaths um, on a day-to-day basis now that it, it feels it would be nice to have one who at least wore beautifully tailored suits and <clears throat> had good table manners and didn't eat McDonald's. But um, I guess a person can't have everything they want. I've never marveled at the fact that like it was on NBC, which is cr- like it makes you think that like the the sen- like the censor board or like a. Uh, that all that stuff is kind of nonsense. <laughs> nonsense. It was like it was. It did seem at the time to be too gory for NBC, but once they put it out and you saw it was in there, it was never like, "Wow, I wish there was an unedited version of this." It was like, "I wish there was more of that." It was like, "No, no, no they're doing exactly what they need to do with the show." And Netflix is now kind of, to me, that that entity that everybody has. It's it's essentially a broadcast network in that it's a utility, and everybody can access the thing and they're more likely to watch it, more likely to watch it at their own pace, more likely to discover it, whatever. Um, when it's that kind of accessible with that much content. Um, so like the fact that it's on Netflix right now, uh, feels like it's, it's in a good home, I guess. Let me pitch this to you though. Controversial take. Hannibal would not have been as good had it been a Netflix property um or even an fx property because broadcast has limits they have commercial blocks they have uh scheduled programming you're not going to get an hour and 22 minute episode of hannibal um like you're going to see in fargo Mm -hmm. or on fargo um netflix the episodes can be as long and lure it as that you want, and you're not going to get a lot of editorial pushback. And I love Brian Fuller, but Brian Fuller has very excessive tastes. And I think he works better uh, when he has something to push back against. Um, there are There are very few, I think, creators in Hollywood who deserve to have free reign over whatever they want at most people in Hollywood work better with an editor or work with work better within limitations, whether that's time limitations or content or how much nudity or dead bodies or whatever you can have. Um, like think of how much better game of Thrones had been if it had gotten any pushback from HBO at all on anything, well, especially those last couple of um, seasons. Well, Exactly. Exactly. I, I, I just, um, so that is my concern because I think that Netflix is a natural place that you would find Hannibal season four, but without the constraints of a network 
that like the the yeah. ex- the excess might spill over and sort of ru- ruin not ruin but like change the thing that that it was. It was always Hannibal always existed on the very edge of camp, um, and it kind of played in both. It, it played in both areas, but I think without the restrictions of broadcast, it 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 might it might just be too much. It might just be ridiculous and and that would miss a lot of the like interesting observations that it had about humanity and how we interact with each other and how we treat people and yeah i don't know one of the things Uh, i hold on to from uh the second batch of influencers we did uh that crystal fault did and he did one for the cinematographer uh on hannibal and it was essentially working within constraints can sometimes bring like incredible uh, results. And essentially the cinematographer was like, we didn't have a ton of money. And so I didn't have all the time in the world for, for setups. So like I leaned into, we don't have money, we don't have time. And so he lit things dark on purpose. Cause if you, if you, and it, it works with like, we don't have money for production design. We don't have money forever. All right, let's make the whole thing shadows and only light what we need to show. And I think like there there are plenty of examples of the show itself, but like only certain things are, are visible and lit and everything else sort of falls off into darkness because they couldn't show it from a, it, 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 it didn't exist. It would look cheap and bad, but in doing so you create a product that is different as opposed to, to being, it's like chiascuro, you know, artwork as opposed to like, Hey, you can see the oh, whole yeah. frame and everything in, in into infinity. And I think there, there's right. something to that. Like sometimes, especially super creative people, they want carte blanche. But I think if you don't have that, they, they, the solutions they come up with can really help. But let me offer a devil's advocate take because, I mean, again, I would never be the person Thematically to argue. <laughs> I would never be the person to argue against uh, getting good, useful, creative notes uh, as well as limitations, considering I've been railing against Netflix for that very reason and encouraging filmmakers to continue working with people who actually understand and want to commit to their work and, and push them forward and, and like a collaborative nature. Um, I, I don't disagree with that at all. What I would say is when it comes to Hannibal, the three seasons that needed to exist on NBC already exist. Um, they're sitting there on, on Netflix waiting for us to consume as is they've, they've faced those limitations. Uh, and to your point earlier, Libby, considering that, uh, we don't know how much longer Hannibal could have gone and continued to be as successful in the iteration that it's in. Um, I'm not advocating that, uh, or the, 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 the devil is not advocating that, uh, the best, next step would be the NC-17 uncut version of Hannibal to air on Netflix and that being the focus of their story. But I would say that um, Netflix has a tendency to not keep shows around very long anymore. Uh, And having them, having these, if, if the creative team got back as it existed already, having them kind of established and understanding of this world and understanding of what they want to do with it letting them continue to play that out however they see fit go with the grace of god like i i i feel like the that you're 100 percent right for 99 percent of the people out in the world that they need that kind of creative pushback to create the best thing they possibly can once you 
have felt that. And once you have understood that that is something that benefits you, and again, I'm not pretending that anyone involved knows this or not, um, but then it's usually the time to take the next step. If you are going to go out on your own, at least go through the process of, of seeing what a creative collaboration can do. And with Hannibal, it's like, okay, n- <laughs> you're definitely going to do your own thing at this point. You're definitely going to make this the Brian Fullerest version of the show that has ever been imagined. Uh, Netflix isn't going to keep you around for more than a year or two. So just fuck it. Let's see what they can do. Millions of Screens is a production of the Penske Media Corporation and NDYR. Our theme music features excerpts of the classic YouTube video, Bjork talking about her TV and Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Auditor-in-Chief is Dana Harris-Brightson. Our publisher is James Israel. And our executive editor is Ann Donahue and host of Corgi Corner. Our favorite Jack Dylan Grazer projects are Speechless, Shazam, and We Are Who We Are. IndieWire endorses all actors who look kind of like Timothy Chalamet, which is... Ironic, because I think he plays a young version of Timothy Chalamet in Beautiful Boy. This is correct. But wow. I didn't want to endorse Beautiful Boy because wow. that movie is not great. Yeah. Uh, we do not, speechless, we, however, was great. great. We do not, yeah, we do not endorse Beautiful Boy. Uh, you can find us on Twitter. At or a, the It movies. Oh, that's true. You did not put the It movies on there. Very purposefully. You cannot. We do endorse my cat, who I often call a beautiful boy. Okay. <laughs> You can find us on Twitter at a million screens, at Midwest Spitfire, at Ben D. Travers, and at Leo Adrian Garcia. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, so leave a review and let us know what you think. This is Ben, Libby, and Leo. Remind you, as always, they shouldn't let poets lie to you. You shouldn't let poets lie to you. Ain't nothing wrong with a couple of cold brews and a cool podcast. <laughs>